millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today we continue our exploration of maritime China. But before we do that, I promised I'd read out any reviews we get. So here we go. We've had a couple of fantastic five-star reviews. This is from the brilliant Ziggy Austin, who runs Rock Solid Co-Steering. So if by any chance you're in South Devon, do go along. I can vouch from personal experience how much fun it is. Ziggy writes, five stars. As a a man of the sea, this podcast is like sweet nectar. I'm always looking for material to turn into sea shanties and stories for my clients and children. This podcast is a deep treasure chest of maritime gold, sunken in an ocean of research and passion. Dr. Sam is an easy listen with an engaging style. How he finds all his guest speakers, I do not know, but they are often brilliant and really bring the varied subjects to life. The most recent episode on castaways is great. More of this, please, Sam. We love gore and peculiarities. Have you done medicine at sea or punishment? Well, I do recommend, Ziggy, that you go back and listen to our episode on Nelson's wounds, which is truly fantastic. And also everyone out there, if you've got suggestions on stories that involve gore and peculiarities, let me know and I'll see if I can get them sorted. Uh, We have another review from TBEBCM. What a mouthful that is. Uh, Five stars. What a fantastic podcast. Each episode presents a different and often overlooked aspect of maritime history with fascinating guests and a lively conversation. Although some subjects are quite technical they're always easily explained so not only are you being entertained you also learn a thing or two as well definitely recommend for those in love with the sea and its history thank you so much we want more reviews like this because it helps us spread the word to meet our challenge of teaching the world about the importance and downright fun of maritime history But back to the topic at hand. It's maritime China again. So far, we've heard about the great 15th century Chinese explorer Zheng He and his seven amazing voyages in which he reached the Arabian Sea and East Africa and everywhere else along the way, of course. We've heard about the archaeological excavations of medieval Chinese trading vessels in Southeast Asia. We've heard about the amazing maize collection of junk and sampan models in 
the collections of London's Science Museum. Today we are hearing about what I think is one of the great investigative research stories in maritime history of recent years. It's the previously untold story of the six Chinese survivors of the Titanic. We know there were eight Chinese male passengers on board the Titanic, all travelling third class, and this is the story of the six that made it. Remarkably, four escaped on the same lifeboat as the Titanic's owner, J. Bruce Ismay, while another was the last person rescued alive from the water. For these men, surviving the Titanic disaster was not the end of their troubles, it was just the beginning. They faced deportations, slurs on their characters and condemnation through racism. As research for the film progressed, it became clear that almost nothing was known about these men in their subsequent years and that some of them may never have even told their families what they had experienced. The film was executive produced by James Cameron, who was director of the Titanic film, and it was directed by Arthur Jones. Now, it just so happens that I've recently returned from filming a new series in China, and the director I worked with was none other than, da-da-da, Arthur Jones. So, in between looking at mysterious masks made in Bronze Age Chinese civilizations and hiking up mountains and looking at some of the earliest forms of Chinese writing inscribed on turtle shells, I made Arthur sit down and tell us all about his fabulous Titanic project. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoyed talking with him. Here is the multi-talented, ever-entertaining and enormously good fun. It's Arthur. Arthur, thank you very much for joining me this morning. Absolute pleasure, Sam. Thanks so much for having me. I should just say for all of our listeners that Arthur and I have been um, travelling around China for several weeks, not too long ago, making a film. So why don't we talk briefly about what we've been doing, Arthur? Absolutely. Can you remember? Well, I mean, we were working on two episodes of a Nat, uh, Nat Geo, National Geographic Channel uh, series called Ancient China from Above. And our main focus was on two archaeological sites, one of them, uh, the, the tomb of the Qing Emperor, um, in in Shanxi province um, in northwest China, and the other this extraordinary site called Sanxingdui in Sichuan province, where they have these um, uh, Bronze Age um, uh, magnificent ritual heads, uh, gold discoveries, and all the rest of it. And all of this has just come out of the ground in the last sort of fifteen twenty years or so, with new pits being opened all the time. So uh, we had the pleasure of being there with you, Sam, and watching you wander around and see see a lot of it for the first time up you know face to face yeah it was wonderful and we were using um photogrammetry and lidar so some good modern technology allowing us to look at these well well-known sites but from completely different perspectives um arthur was uh, directing everything and it was very enjoyable traveling around china with someone who has lived there for many years how long have you been in china i keep saying 25 years but i think i've slipped past 25 and i'm heading rapidly towards 30 Yes. <laughs> well, it's an impressive stint. I always know I need to come home after three weeks. I, need to just go, come. <laughs> I love it and I love it. But um, but yeah, I do like coming home. So staying there is really quite impressive. You're calling us from you in Shanghai. This I'm morning. in Shanghai right now. Yes. Yeah. Um, it was while we were working, Arthur was telling me about his other um, projects that he'd done. Um, and uh, one of which is called The Six, which is a it's a brilliant idea and a magnificent achievement. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. So, Arthur, why don't you just begin by telling us uh, how did the project begin? 
Well, I'd been working with a friend of mine called Stephen Schwankert uh, on another film previously, and we'd kind of come up with the idea of doing instead of... I'm just going to jump in. That's the Poseidon, because I've spoken to Stephen about the Poseidon. So we're going to be... um, That's going to be broadcast very soon as part of this series. So everyone, you're going to get to hear from Stephen, Arthur's friend, and all about this amazing um, British submarine, which which sank in the 30s, wasn't it? And then was um, secretly salvaged by the Chinese. In the 1970s. um, Yeah, no, it's an extraordinary story and Stephen and kind of Stephen and I had made the Poseidon project as a kind of calling card for what we felt was a a new genre at least for China which was the idea of kind of detective history documentaries rather than telling the story of something that's already been well established we thought let's tell the story of being on the road and trying to work it out ourselves piece it together archives uh you know sort of at the coalface, looking for things, potentially underwater, all that kind of stuff, which combined a lot of Stephen's interests in maritime history with my interest in, in, um, in uh, well, in documentaries, but particularly in investi- investigative docu- documentaries. So having made that one, having made the Poseidon Project, it became a kind of calling card Uh, for that type of film and a lot of people liked it a lot and I mean we made it for a very low budget and it was really the two of us I co-directed with my brother Luther um, and um, we yeah it was a very small outfit we basically shot it ourselves but the fundamental idea the format if you like of that documentary became uh, something we were quite excited to find another one to do and we thought well let's go for a bigger one let's go for something that's uh, more instantly recognizable and Stephen had been occasionally mentioning over the last couple of years of that project oh you know at some point we should do something about the chinese on titanic there was another film we thought about doing about a big chinese shipwreck as well and we kept referring to it as the chinese titanic so it sort of felt inevitable titanic began to seep into our uh into our bones in a way and in the end i think it was the reaction of chinese friends that persuaded me that this one really had legs because i would say to friends um well, we're thinking about doing this story about the Chinese people who were on Titanic. And they'd say, oh, is that like a movie or something? I'd say, no, well, it's no, there were Chinese people on Titanic. And we were thinking about making a film about who they were and why nobody knows who, where they went and, and all that kind of stuff. And they'd say, are you serious? Were there actually Chinese people on Titanic? Because it always seemed such a strange paradox that Titanic, the movie, the Cameron movie, was such a massive hit in China and continues to be a kind of definitional film here. Um, and yet no one knew anything about there being Chinese on board. And that's odd to me particularly because although I was not a sort of maritime history uh, nerd when I was a kid, that I wasn't that kind of a little boy growing up. Um, I did, you know, the, the importance of Titanic is obvious sort of culturally. And in fact, I grew up in a village in Lincolnshire, part of my childhood, where there was a woman an elderly woman who lived across the green who at least locally we all said was a titanic survivor so it was that kind of thing where you thought well you can't have titanic survivors and not know it you know from your own country your own area and not know who they are and in this case there were six survivors uh, out of eight chinese passengers and we thought well how is it possible that people don't know who they are or where they went or really anything about them and that was the beginning of the of the motivation for spending so long making it and you said you wanted to do uh, make a film that was investigative and you certainly gave yourself a significant challenge because it turned out pretty quickly that no one really knew anything at all about these people. Well, absolutely. And in fact, like everything else in the world of Titanic, the, the 
the the scant evidence there was that they even existed had been uh, so largely rejected as as decent evidence by the Titanic community. They'd said, well, those names are clearly badly transcribed. They're not They're mm. not in Chinese for a start. So they're sort of badly trans- transcribed, anglicized versions of their names. Uh, and, and when we looked at this list of eight Chinese passenger names, some of them, it became clear fairly early on, were not real names, or that at least they were not long enough to be real names. They were all, for example, they were all two character names. And as you'll know, Sam, having spent time in China, most people... Nowadays, there are three character names, although you do get two character names, but you certainly wouldn't expect a list of eight people to just randomly all have two characters. And then we began to realize that, in fact, a lot of Chinese names transcribed in the West pre-1950s, 1960s were written down as just two names. Probably, we we think, and people have said to us, just because it's very inconvenient to have to say more sounds that people don't really know how to write down, so you'd simplify it. But over time, we discovered that those... Uh, even the two names that we had for each of those people were largely inaccurate. In many cases, yeah, were actually fake this names. Question of nicknames, or, or or whether it was a fake name, but the nickname idea I thought was really interesting. Was it um, Ali? Uh, Alam. Well, that was one of the ones. Alam. Yeah, Alam. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, yes, that's right. Well, you're, you're saying Ali. What's interesting because Alam, we now know him to be a man who travelled under the name Alam. What's complicated is that for a hundred years in history textbooks and history books about Titanic, where there have been lists that have included his, his name, when it's been transcribed, typed up, they've written it as Ali Lamb. You'll, you'll know there's a scene in the film. Just because they've they've misread the way that the A and the H, the sort of cursive H from the 1910s, and they've written it as Ali. And that's the kind of mistake we discovered all the way through this project, where any wherever anybody had actually spent any reasonable and serious time looking at this, they'd made real sort of novice mistakes like that. If you know anything about China, you'd know that Ali couldn't really be a name here. It's not the kind of name that people would have. But Whereas R, A-H, as it was written at the time, these days it'd be, it would be written just A, but at the time, A-H, um, is a kind of dimin- diminutive. It's like calling somebody Little Johnny or something like that. It's, it's just a, a diminutive. So he's called Little Lamb. That's what his name is, really. Um, yeah. Alam, which of course makes it even more complicated because probably he had a three character name, whereas we've got him now down to basically Little John or Little Ben. Nothing else to go on. Yeah, really difficult. And there are other names which were incredibly common, so common in fact that you couldn't trace them. I thought it was interesting. Tell us about that. Well, for us, it was we had this question people kept saying. They would say, what would you do if you can't find someone or you can't find anything or you get it wrong or something? And I always felt like one of the advantages of this form of documentary of storytelling is that you can be honest about your failings. You know, you can yeah. say we couldn't find this or we found this. We thought for a long time it was this bloke, but it turned out we were wrong. And in a way, in a movie, you might have car chases and gunfights and that kind of, you know, those kind of um moments of drama for us it's the disappointment of following a lead and discovering it's gone wrong or chasing around trying to find somebody and then realizing it's the wrong person it's a dead end so actually where in the case of chung fu who actually was the hardest of all of them to really locate we have some leads but it's such a common name the food there's like four or five different foods you could have based on the chinese character and the chang or zhang as it would be in modern chinese modern mandarin chinese uh is just one of the most common names here i mean hundreds of thousands of people have that name so you would just find chung fu after chung fu in the in the archive list the the list of of, of, of seamen and so on so it was just painfully difficult we did find 
some interesting leads on Chung Fu and that we do have our suspicions that we may have discovered who he is but you know at some point you have to let it drop so we let we let that one kind of lie as as the one as the one that got away that in a way helped us to show quite how brutal it was as a process trying to try to work out who the rest were yeah and that's an extraordinary rate of survival how did you start thinking about that what might have been the causes for so many of the chinese surviving well that was we we in the end we and as you'll know having seen it sam we sort of divided the film in two you know the first half of the film was our basically our question was how did these men eight men who were in third class which had the worst survival rate for men especially um how did they have such a high survival rate and just to be clear about it they they survived six of eight 75 percent. so they had a 75 percent survival rate that is the highest survival rate for any national group on board titanic with the exception of i think there's a couple of nations i think there was one spanish bloke on board and one japanese man on board and they both survived so obviously 100 percent. but there was only one of them so any national group that had more than one person in they're the highest survival rate by quite a long way um so yeah, we, with the others i think it was bulgarians was it 100 percent of them died and um, yes. i can't remember what the other nationality was oh, but there, there were, were definitely really... definitely 100 percent uh uh, mortality and then there was a couple of countries that only had one person with 100 percent. but on average you'd expect eight men if they you know stuck by the average of survival on board maybe one of them would have survived possibly two somewhere between one and two might have survived so they the incredible rate so that was our first question in a way you know how did they survive especially given that that we suspect based on historical um uh, you know, precedents, their English wouldn't have been that good. So it would have been very hard for them to follow instructions on board. Um, they would have been uh, uh, the most obvious of the kind of ethnic minorities, the most foreign looking of the foreigners on board com in comparison to the to the sort of Anglo-Saxons who were the centre central uh, portion, the, the Brits and the and Americans. And this is about clothing as well. It's not just about physical appearance. Absolutely. You know, um, yeah. Absolutely. So, so Chinese Clothing, caps, Chinese... Exactly. Uh, Chinese caps. Um, we the, the exact clothing they had, we don't know for sure, but we did find insurance lists of some of the things they claimed. So there would have been probably a mix of Chinese workers' clothing and possibly sort of cheap kind of Western suits they would have had as well for certain kinds of scenarios. Yeah. We also think that some of them at least had still had cues. So, you know, sort of uh, yeah. uh, their hair tied back. Um so that would have made them fairly obvious as well as a foreign group. And then in 1912 was a was a you know it can't be we can't forget was a, a brutally uh, prejudiced and racist time. And and when you look at back at, at Titanic through a, a, a sort of racial lens or an ethnic lens, it becomes very clear that there are some very strange things going on on board. The way that groups, especially white groups, especially um, northern european american groups talked about other groups essentially what was happening was a kind of lazy racism of ignorance where you would get if if somebody had witnessed someone on board doing something that they thought was dishonorable or or rushing or shouting or being bad in some way um being a bit of a brute they would without any evidence say uh, just call them the Italians who ran past me, or they would say the Irish who were down there, you know, without any evidence, they would just do that. And it turns out, I, I did a bit of a, a scan through the literature and media of the time, and it's ex extremely common. I mean, there's a very famous uh, pamphlet written by one of the female survivors, in which, which is well known because it's an incredibly generous uh, 
pamphlet about men and women on board and how people sacrifice themselves and it's really a famous laudatory piece of text about other survivors and so on and those who died honorably what it's less well known for is that at a certain point in there she says i talk of course uh, of the of the um the anglo-saxon race on board of the others I, I i could never say these things i paraphrase but roughly she's saying i'm saying that basically the white people on board were very honorable everyone else not so honorable and that was very very common to talk in 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 those terms about titanic and we were surprised actually steve and i that titanic had not been looked at in that way through a sort of ethnic lens to see different survival rates or different treatments of people and in their case and this is where the story took a twist for us the particular thing that stood out was the way that the six who survived were treated on arrival in New York once they once they got there. They had a particularly unique experience that sort of opened up the whole story for us. Yeah, I mean, it's not just the the kind of the period of racism. I think um, it's not just the period which causes racism. What what is interesting is there's an entirely kind of separate strand of racism on shipwrecks or racism associated with shipwrecks, which I only know a little bit about. I wrote a book about shipwrecks many years ago, and yes. I discovered some fascinating stuff. And that's to do with the British perceptions of how other races behaved in shipwrecks. And um, I think the lowest of the low are the Italians. <laughs> like, yes, that's right. Less less than useless. French pretty bad. Italians yes. less than useless um, and I think we need to find out a little bit more about well, that. Well it's really interesting and I think you know you look at this because Titanic's often been used as a snapshot of life and I think you know maritime disasters in general are often used as a kind of snapshot of a certain period but in that case you know this Ed Edwardian morals what's interesting about Titanic I think is that and this is what kind of baffled me from the beginning is that we've we've frozen in time this moment of Edwardian history and we treat it as if it's still the 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 morals the values of that time are somehow were meant to still agree with them now and it's amazing how often people refer to titanic and say oh yeah of course women and children first as if we ever stick to that now as if that's even part of our we say it as if it's true but what was the last disaster where that was even relevant we don't really think about it so what was odd to me, and of course, the more I looked at, you'll know much more about this than I do. But I think there was one particular wreck, a 19th century wreck, that was the beginning of the women and children first sort of idea uh, where some, I think, Royal Navy or naval chaps had rescued themselves and not brought women off a ship that was floundering and, and, and so on. I think that was the beginning of it. And Titanic really was the last time it was properly mentioned, I believe, or we, we had a good rummage around. It seems to have died. So we, we somehow keep it alive as a concept. And what we do that, and it's a strange thing because the media at the time really latched onto it. And so very early on, the media, a lot of the media, let's say, including the very serious media, the sort of the broadsheets of their time, viewed it as their job to tell the world who was villainous and who is heroic on board, instead of saying, here's this enormous kind of corporate and legislative disaster, like an act of corporate negligence. And who's to blame? What are the structures that have put these people in this awful situation? And instead to focus for at least the following month, and then of course, by definition, the following hundred, next hundred years, including films about it, into a catalogue of who's a villain in a time of absolute panic and who is and who's a hero, as if the world is divided that way, or as if it, given that, you know, the, the evidence for these things is very scant, even whether a gun was fired, or whether somebody was shot, or who was in what lifeboat, we still think it's important to work out whether this bloke called 
you know, Bruce Ismay was a bit of a git or somebody else was a... Do you know what I mean? It's, it, to me, that seems a very yeah. perverse reading of an enormously... Yeah. Uh, an, an act of corporate negligence, essentially, or human human error on the part of a captain, if you want to look at it another way. Yeah, it's also fascinating, the whole women and children first thing, because it's, it's, it always comes down to men being the ones in control permitting the women and children to leave the boat and actually when you look at it when if you if you look at it from a lens that empowers the women's story um there are a lot of women who refuse to leave the boat and yes. um the, the the whole relationship is completely different to the, the whole concept of women and children first which is pressed by by the press uh, which is controlled by men and then you've got all of these men on board the ship and there's what happened was entirely different from yeah that. and actually what, what what i was just one last thing on that what's interesting is we discovered that there was a whole uh thread of, of feminist writing back in 1912 remember this is sort of the suffragettes period and so on um and just pre pre first world war uh, when these issues were being talked about and there were women writing articles fairly few and far between but they existed saying um why don't we challenge this concept why are we rescuing women what's the what that you know if we're in a world where we're, we're we're pushing for equality the idea that we're sort of the goods and chattels of the men and that they need to move us around between lifeboats is just absurd in fact there was one quite famous article in which a woman had written a, a well-known feminist at the time had written you know the chinese don't view it that way she'd actually done it what's interesting as a kind of hey there are other models in this world you don't have to view it that way there are other whether or not she was right about the chinese is a bit of a moot point of chinese culture at the time um but she made this point and it later that article is remembered for saying that's the reason why Chinese had survived because they're sort of brutal and men-centered and all the rest of it and they didn't bother rescuing wow. women. Whereas, in fact, that was wow. never her point at all. Her point was... No. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There are other models that we could look at. Yeah. So coming back to how and why these Chinese survived, yes. do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think uh, if you had to sum it up to one essential uh, reason, um, it would come down to the fact that they were what is known as uh, deadheads. They were mariners. They were seamen. 
And and so for all their lack of language skills, we think one or two of them spoke English reasonably well. Um, it looks like what they did is they essentially set off on their own went a different route and ended up on the deck very early. Most third-class passengers ended up perishing on board because they just didn't come up to the decks quick enough. It wasn't... Yeah. It probably wasn't so much the way the films portray it as them being sort of locked down there, but more there was a sort of ordering of society at that point. They were held in a certain uh, waiting area, sort of penned-off area, that they actually could walk in and out of, but they were told to wait there. They tended to follow the rules, and by the time they got on the decks, the lifeboats had gone. So the Chinese came up earlier, we think about an hour earlier, and therefore had more of a chance to get into lifeboats, which we should always emphasise... Almost all the lifeboats left somewhere between half full and with a few seats left. In fact, there's, there isn't really a record of one of the lifeboats leaving full. So there were seats available on all the lifeboats. They, they weren't, to be clear, taking up the seats of anyone else because there were seats available on all the lifeboats. Um, but they just managed to get on deck early enough. So we think they weren't following instructions. There's a sense in which they may have seen one of the routes up, the one we think they took that went up through the second class area, um, which was marked as an emergency exit, rather than going right down to the other end of the ship and waiting there. They, they, it looks like they came up early. There's that. And then, of course, the other element is luck. I mean, you just had to be very lucky to survive Titanic as well. So some uh, some sort of combination of those two things appears to have uh, been what saved them. Also, they didn't jump into the water from a height, which a lot of people did. And if you jump into water from that kind of height, a decent percentage, some somewhere a quarter, a third, will just die on impact with the water because of that gas response you have. Such cold water, you tend to swallow about two litres. We did some tests on that and found out. So a lot of people jumped from height and died very quickly. Uh, but they uh, lowered themselves into the water, the final two or three that didn't get into lifeboats. And of those, Fung Lung, who became our central character, was the one who lowered himself into water. And within, we think, about 20 minutes, managed to at least pull his torso out of the water on a piece of wood, possibly a door. Uh, and that's how he survived. So they really, they really cover the whole breadth of survivor stories, spread across three or four different lifeboats and in the water itself. Uh, and to survive in the water was a remarkable thing. I mean, there's you can sort of the number of people who went into the water and then ended up surviving is you you can you can literally list them on on the fingers of two hands. Yeah, it's interesting then that these guys were sailors because that raised this the question of what they were doing on Titanic, and I thought this was fascinating because it gives you a sense of the context in which they lived, where they were going from, and where they were going to. And it's by thinking about it this way, you realise. Um, that the Titanic may not have been the worst thing that happened in their lives. And that is, that's like a profoundly impactful thing. So tell us a little bit about what these guys were up to. Why were they on Titanic? Well, they were, they were eight Chinese men. They were stationed in London at the time, uh, but they were fairly mobile. They were a sort of part of this uh, transitory, uh, you know, on the road, Chinese community of men, 90-95% men, who'd left China in the late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, in in search of work, in search of ways to earn money and send back home, in their case, to a portion of South uh, Southern China in Guangdong province called Taishan, which is less well known in the UK than it is in the US, because Taishan is really the the source of most of the Chinatowns in America. It's the it's the small part of Guangdong province that was intensely mobile and travelled around the world, often beginning as 
as uh, working on ships and then later, you know, settling down somewhere and setting up a, a shop, a laundry or so on. These guys had ended up in London around the same time. We think two or three, three or four of them knew each other. The rest appear to have just randomly been placed. But they were working for a shipping line. They were, they were in a sense... Um, uh, signed up on a, on a work contract with a shipping line and what had happened in in March April 1912 is that there was a coal strike and so shipping was really being suppressed in the UK in fact Titanic was sort of lucky or wealthy enough to still make that voyage the White Star Line had bought up a load of coal from other lines in order to make the to keep those uh, um, to keep the the lines open but a lot of other shipping had closed down and so the 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 shipping line that had hired these eight men wanted to send them over to the US so that they could work on sort of eastern seaboard American shipping. So they wanted to send them over there where that shipping company had other ships that were, were working up and down the coast. So that's the story of what happened. They were on Titanic, but for them, Titanic probably wasn't even a word they knew. It was just a big ship that was going to take them across. A lot of people over the years have assumed that because they were seamen that they were working on board Titanic, but they weren't. They were they were properly, fully-fledged, third-class passengers with a ticket. In fact, they had a shared ticket, which was something that third-class passengers had at that point. You could buy a sort of block ticket for, for eight of them. Yeah. And what was going on in Taishan is interesting, because it's not coincidental that this is an area of China which led to so many people moving away from it. So can you tell us a little bit about what they may have been fleeing from? Yes, I mean, fleeing is probably over-egging it. There wasn't a war going on. There was a lack of land. So there was an issue of population growth in the air at the time. Uh, We spoke to one or two uh, history professors in the area who gave us great perspective, but one in particular called Professor Liu Liu Jing uh, from Jiangmen University down there. And he told us this extraordinary story how there was it's a combination of economic factors where you'd get the eldest son in the family often who would uh, who would come of age and then sort of head off to make their fortune because there wasn't enough land to give to children it was all parceled up already and then there was a series of floods and so there was even more pressure for that for them to sort of go off and make their fortune somewhere else so it's a combination of there was poverty there certainly poverty certainly by our standards these times in these times but it wasn't the poorest place in china there were other bits of china where people weren't leaving but there was sort of a spirit so after a while, you know, there's sort of a question of why they're doing this. Well, they're doing it because that's what they do. You know, that's what people mm-hmm. in the area did. They kind of headed off to make their fortunes elsewhere. So they would head off. Usually they'd end up in Hong Kong, which is quite close to, to there. They'd get, they'd say, sign up with one shipping company and kind of work their way back to Europe. And then often once they got to Europe, at different points in history, it'd be different major um uh, trading capitals but London certainly for a lot of the early 20th century they'd end up in London in the Chinatown then in at Limehouse and then they would sign up and then do several years with one particular ship they usually sign up for three four years and then they'd sign up with somebody else and you can really see them being bounced around by history so early 20th century you've got these floods in Taishan they're leaving 19 19- 12 you've got the coal strike going on in the uk a lot of british chinese sailors moved over to the u.s it was more open i think 1914 you get of uh, 1914 1915 you get the dual pressure of some protectionist measures in the u.s where they're trying to stop quite so many foreigners in big scare quotes working on american boats they're trying to protect the the local uh 
you know, the lo local seamen. And also, you've got the First World War breaking out back in Europe and a huge need for a boost in merchant seamen who can take over from the British seamen who became part of the Royal Navy. So as the Royal Navy filled up with people who had, you know, experience working in the merchant navy they needed people to fill in those roles so they got pulled back that way by the 19 early 1920 late 1919 1920s there's this huge anti-chinese sort of late anti-chinese movement because there'd been a lot of that earlier but a last push to kind of clear chinese out of of european ports and centers as the unions kicked in and became more powerful so there's all sorts of swirling historical reasons why they were really being moved around it's interesting because as as we followed their story as individuals and tried to find them and tried to find a signature or an address and so on sometimes when we lost track of them we'd managed to pick them up again by going back to the wider history and saying where could they have gone where would it have made sense for them to have gone next because where would history have pushed them yeah and i think the the sort of the final chapter of the story, what happened to the survivors, that's it's really um, profoundly moving, I think. Just talk a little bit about what we know they, they experienced after surviving Titanic. Well, I mean, the first thing to say is that uh, I, I've hinted that they, they had this unique experience on arrival in the US, but uh, you know, to be more particular about it, what happened is that the 700 or so survivors of Titanic arrived on the ship Carpathia, the rescue ship, in Manhattan and they were essentially off disembarked brought into New York and, and put up in hotels or hospitals if they needed treat, treatment it was paid for by the city and the generosity of New Yorkers the one group of people who never left Carpathia on the day they arrived were the Chinese who were held in custody on board and they were held in ignominy they were written about in the press as if they were somehow had betrayed uh, the rest of the passengers that they'd done something dishonorable and also that they were fundamentally flawed because they were Chinese as in we should never have trusted them being on board anyway and don't worry we're not going to let them stay I mean there literally is an article that says to in, in effect uh, in one of the New York press don't worry we'll have them out of the city as soon as we can so they left within 24 hours they were put on a on a a, a a merchant vessel and sent off and the record of that shows them going off towards cuba this of course in america is part of the chinese exclusion act which was this uh you know government uh, uh bill that stopped chinese settling in america when this huge anti-chinese swell of uh of sentiment came up in um in the late late 19th century so that lasted for 60 60 years or so from the 1880s through to the 1940s and excluded most Chinese with the exception of uh, the wealthy scholars and a few others but essentially anybody who was sort of working class from arriving in America and you have to remember this is a time when America had not had a law anything like that it was the country that allowed everyone in if you came to work you could come in and work there were no essentially there were very few immigration laws and certainly nothing that identified anyone by nationality or ethnicity but if you were chinese you were not allowed to to come in so they, they were and there was no exception for them being made for them having just survived one of the you know greatest shipwrecks of all time and the, the awareness of the tragedy and just to be clear they had lost two people you know who were friends we think with Fang Long and 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 devastated his his life in particular but possibly some of the rest of them and that story of them making huge efforts to achieve something work really hard to do something and then being scuppered just continues over the years and it on every level in terms of work in terms of family 
they it looks like none of them ever managed to get any of the rest of their family over to join them there was a problem with the chinese diaspora at that point in europe and america which was as i mentioned already they were 90 95% men women were generally not allowed to to had no excuse had no reason for being allowed into the uk or the us in particular and so there was very little chance for them to marry um and and compounded by anti-miscegenation laws in the us that stopped chinese and uh, black folk and you know from marrying cross-racially again with big square uh, scare quotes cross-racially in many states in the u.s if you were chinese you were not allowed to marry a white person a white woman it would have been in most cases so um we realized fairly early on there was a good chance that there may not be any descendants and we we suspected that might be why no one had claimed them because we thought that was one of the oddest things that nobody had come forward and said well that's my grandfather and nobody had done that at all and uh, we set that as a sort of early barrier tragic though it might be if we can't find any descendants it might be a book that Stephen would certainly work on because it would still make a great book but it it might be hard to make that into a film yeah the other thing i thought was interesting is is um it became very clear that some of the people who had been on titanic and experienced it didn't want to talk about it were uh, didn't want their um relatives to know about it um and i was wondering whether that was a kind of a uniquely chinese thing the past is the past let's move on and let's deal with the present or whether uh, you think that's more of a, a common human human ailment i think it is both i think it's both yeah. i mean i think it's it's the in its more extreme form you can see it amongst chinese families and when we went to film we had the huge honor incredibly moving day we spent in manhattan in uh, i think it's called pell street where the one of the uh uh churches i think that the chinese community uses in in um in manhattan in the chinatown there uh we went to interview a whole bunch of people who had who were you know who had a Chinese ethnicity who whose families had come over most of them were second third generation there were a couple who'd come over themselves in the last sort of 20 30 years absolutely extraordinary um uh, stories and so profoundly moving and there are these cases where you a grandfather has not told his family that their name is not the name they've used for the last 60 years and they're dismayed by that in a sense how could you not tell us who we really are kind of thing and yet you know he did it or the grandmother did it because they were protecting the family they didn't want to have them going around telling a lie that would have exposed them as potentially perhaps illegal immigrants back in the 1930s yeah um and so the 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 secrets and lies i always had this theory that what happened on titanic if there were descendants if there were survivors who had had kids it must have had an effect on their families even if they didn't know about it just not knowing about it must have done something to a family i just i just, i mean perhaps it's because i've been a journalist and now i make documentaries i have the you know secrets and lies are not without consequence they do things to families they twist them even if they're done for the best of reasons i mean often they are the only way to survive you have to do it there isn't another way they're sort of the worst the best worst solution but they do then split families and make them twisted and broken in very strange ways and i mean the most um obvious example is the fong family where we we managed to find descendants who were extraordinarily young um in fact they're the youngest uh, children of a titanic survivor um 
who are still around. I mean, bear in mind that children of Titanic survivors are disappearing now. They're in their 80s, 90s, 100s. Um, so there are there aren't that many of them left. There are no survivors left. There haven't been for the last 15 years or so. So it really is, you know, extraordinary. And we found this family and they had exactly this story, a life growing up split in a very strange way by the story of titanic that was never told to them was hinted at to a few other people and what that represented for their family and what it did for their family to have to live with that that lie i mean lie just seems a very strong word for it you know but it is a lie it's a secret it's a lie it's telling a different version i mean that we got fang lang's um and to be clear fang lang is the man that survived by floating on a piece of wood in the water possibly yeah. the last survivor picked up from titanic uh on lifeboat 14 that went back the only lifeboat that went back to look for survivors and when we finally managed to get his his uh what's it called his alien file i think which is the immigration file that the um that the state department keeps in um in the u.s through a through a, a freedom of information act request that took us about a year to get when we finally got it it was actually the first time that we confirmed even that he had ever been a sailor He'd never told anyone, including his ex-wife, any of his children, that he'd even been a sailor. Forget about being on Titanic. So his life was so partitioned, uh, you know, in order to survive, what we discovered was essentially 30 years of being an undocumented, illegal immigrant to the US. Yeah. Well, um, it's an extraordinary story. And thank you very much indeed for sharing it with us today. Um, is there a way that people in the UK can watch this film? I know it's available on Chinese streaming platforms. It rolls. It's a curious thing how these things roll out, but it rolls out over several years. The best way, and it has played in 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 Canada. It's played in in uh, in Spain and Hong Kong, and as you say, mainland China and Japan and, and and Australia. Often on the national broadcaster. So we're hopeful that at some point it will play in the UK, certainly the US, and and so on. Um, the best way to keep an eye out for the release date is to go either to the facebook page if you just search for the six documentary on on facebook where we have a really thriving uh, community of people who've helped us enormously to make the film or to the website itself the six documentary the six documentary.com where we put all of our uh, release dates and theatricals and and film festivals and so on brilliant stuff well let's watch this space arthur thank you very much indeed that was fascinating thanks so much sam Thank you all so much for listening. Now, don't forget, please leave us a rating. Please leave us a review. I promise I'll read it out. Please check out our wonderful YouTube page and some fantastic animations and other forms of video which will change the way that you think about the maritime past. I promise. Uh, please remember that this podcast comes from both the Lloyd's Register Foundation and the Society for Nautical Research. The Lloyd's Register Foundation have just launched this year's amazing new series of maritime innovation in miniature, filming the world's best ship models with the latest camera equipment. It's as cool as it sounds, I promise you. I've been involved in it. I've just come back from the Science Museum where we filmed a ship model made by a French prisoner of war out of animal bone and human hair beat that. It's utterly extraordinary so please make sure you check all of that out. The Society for Nautical Research you can find at snr.org.uk and please join up. It's a brilliant way not only of finding out all about maritime history from the best in the business but also of meeting people and generally having a wonderful time. <laughs>